Mark My Words shares Mark Homer's contrarian views on investing, business, finance, economics, and all things money. Mark interviews the world's most successful business, finance, and money experts, as well as imparting his knowledge in a factual, direct, and no-nonsense manner. Welcome to Mark My Words, and here is your host, Mark Homer. Hello, and welcome to Mark My Words. This is Mark Homer. I'm getting a lot of questions at the moment around the new tax rules, tax changes, and specifically people have said to me that they want to hear from someone who's doing a lot of these incorporations, who's moving properties into limited companies and finding ways around the the inability to claim all the mortgage interest relief and the rules that have just come in around that. And so I've got Luke Prout here from McIntyre Hudson, who's very experienced in these. He's, he's doing, he's moving a lot of property investors into limited companies and, and finding ways around these new tax changes. So I'm going to sit here, I'm going to, I'm going to grill him, I'm going to ask him the questions that you've asked me. He's got some, some clever ideas himself and some little tweaks and things that you can do that I, I didn't know about myself, actually. I've, I've learned quite a lot this afternoon just sitting here talking to him. So, uh, Luke, welcome. Hi, Mark. So, Luke, just just tell us a little bit about yourself. What is it that you do? What experience have you got? Yeah, so I, 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 I specialise in tax advisory and um, I'm based in Peterborough, McIntyre, Hudson. We are a national firm of accountants with offices all over the United Kingdom and uh, we're also part of Baker Tilly International, which is uh, an international network represented from around the world. So we're uh, we're also in the top 20 um, firms of charters of accountants in, in the United Kingdom. We, over the past sort of two to three years since the uh, changes that have been announced by the Chancellor, uh, have received, uh, we've been inundated with uh, queries uh, uh, from, from many of our clients in regards to the changes that, that have been brought in. So we started off, obviously, with the interest restrictions, then the stamp duty, and then uh, the capital gains tax changes uh, uh, early last year, and then other things like wear and tear and, and so on. But the main emphasis or, or the, the, the main uh, queries we get is is where a lot of our clients hold their properties outside of a company and, and, and whether they should incorporate. Okay, Luke, so... There have clearly been some changes and, you know, we really today we're talking predominantly about property tax changes that, you know, the the attack on buy-to-let that's been triggered by, you know, previously George Osborne, now Philip Hammond seems to be carrying the torch and and continuing with the the attack. So what are these new rules in, in essence and how do they affect investors? Okay, yes, Mark. Um, the the main rule that was brought in uh, was in regards to the uh, restriction for the loan interest that one can deduct from their rental receipts. The rules are being brought in from April this year, so April 2017, and they'll be phased in over four years to April 2020. Currently, if you are like any other normal business, if you take out a loan to fund um, to purchase an asset in your business, in this case a, a buy-to-let property, you are able to deduct the interest charge as a, uh, a deduction to your rents received and obviously minus other costs, the profit is taxed like any other business. However, from April 17, this rule is being changed, whereas rather than receiving a deduction for the interest, the uh, taxpayer will receive a 20% tax credit 
for the interest they paid, which effectively means that if you are a high rate or additional rate taxpayer, you will only receive 20% tax relief for the interest that um, is deducted against your rental income. Obviously, as discussed, this is bringing it being brought in over four years. So for 2017-18, for the way it will be done is 75% of the interest will be deductible as normal, but then the remaining 25% you will only receive a 20% tax credit for. And then next year it will be 50-50, and then 25-75, and then the full 100 will be brought in from 2020. Basic rate taxpayers at the moment, this does not affect because, as, as I've just said, you'll get a tax credit at 20%. So if you're a 20% taxpayer, you, you'll, know, you'll notice no change. The additional rate or higher rate taxpayers, where you're paying tax at 40 or 45%, this becomes an issue because then suddenly, we, we, when you do, we've done some calculations that you could effectively be paying more tax than what your net profit is. So that's pretty sobering. And I think most investors that, that we talk to know about these rules. They don't necessarily know the effect of them, but they know that something's happening. I think in the wider landlord community, that's quite different. There are um, a large percentage of landlords who, who don't even know anything is happening at all. In fact, I think a lot of them don't even file tax returns. But, you know, the, the, there is, there's, there's quite a few. So I guess from April this year, or, well, it might not hit until April 18 or the end of when their tax return goes in and they start to see that tax bill go up, you know, lots of them will be blissfully unaware and, uh, until then. So the main issue we've got is this inability to offset the mortgage interest against the, the, the rent if you own the property personally. But, but I understand that if a limited company owns the, the property and you own the shares in the limited company, this is um, exempted and effectively you can you can offset all the interest against the rent. Is that correct? Yes. So uh, let's expand that a little bit. So, so these rules don't apply to commercial property. So whether it's in or outside of a limited company, furnished holiday lets, which are qualifying furnished holiday lets, they have to be occupied for so many days and uh, properties owned by limited companies. And I also understand that serviced accommodation is excluded as well. Is that right? Yes, serviced accommodation, provided it's akin to to a a, a, a hotel type of like um, accommodation. So you go onto a booking dot com to book a, a an apartment for the night in London, and that's obviously bed, linen, uh, other services are provided. And then that type of accommodation would would also be um, excluded. So that's quite interesting. So if there are some flats that people have got to keep in their own name, one way around this might be to flip the property over onto a serviced accommodation model, rent it out on a nightly basis, and, you know, they'll kill two birds with one stone because they'll pay less tax as well. Yeah, so there are, there are a number of potential benefits. It's just you just need to make sure that the that it qualifies as what we call a trade rather than a property lettings business. So a trade for these purposes would be um, that you provide no, more than what uh, being a, a, a landlord, so you receive a rent. So yes, it's about the additional services you provide. It's not just the room. Okay, so let's get into the bones of this, Luke. We've got a property or we've got a portfolio of properties and we want to move them from our own name into a limited company. Now, I think there's some tax to pay on the way in, potentially capital gains tax, stamp duty. Can some of those taxes be avoided? And, and how, how do you do it? 
Firstly, yes, you, you are quite right. There are potentially taxes to pay when you transfer a property to a company. Let's just go back to basics um, without any of the any reliefs available. Is, is when you sell a property to a company of which that company you are a shareholder, technically you are selling a property to a connected person. A company qualifies as a person in these instances. Therefore, without any reliefs, capital gains tax will be due on the market value of the transfer of the property to the company and equally there is a similar rule for stamp duty purposes that says if you transfer a property to a company stamp duty is due on the market value of the property usually with stamp duty it's due on consideration but this is, is an exemption to the rule now there are there are a few reliefs available but and for, for businesses where you have uh, predominantly sole traders and partnerships that wish to transfer their business to a company and, and there's, a, there's a very popular re relief called incorporation relief. And that's a relief that effectively defers the gain on any assets, chargeable assets, in, in a business by transferring them to the company, of which then the gain is rolled over into the shares. As a little um, sort of addition, um, the, the, any, any assets that transfer to the company, in which in this case would be buy-to-let properties, would actually be uplifted to their market value. So, for example... If you had a uh, property portfolio of, say, two properties with, say, you've bought them for 100,000 each and now they're worth 250,000 each, so 500, you've got a 300,000 pound gain. When you transfer them to your company and you claim incorporation relief, those properties for, for capital gains purposes get uplifted to 500,000 pounds. So the company would acquire them at tax purposes for 500,000. The shares, obviously, you would acquire for 200,000 pounds. Uh, being the original cost of the properties. So if you ever sold the shares, you'd pay capital gains tax on the shares. But you wouldn't necessarily sell the shares in the company? No, no. And, that, and that's um, sort of when we're speaking with our clients, we're, we're looking at incorporation relief. And we, we, the one question we ask is, when are you going to sell the shares? Because if you never plan to sell the shares, but you might sell a few properties along the line, that actually, if you've got some which are highly pregnant with gains... And then actually, and you are looking to sell them in the, in the not too distant future, then maybe using them through by incorporating it into a company and selling them might not be a bad um, way to dispose. The downside is obviously is when the property, when the company sells the property, obviously the cash will be in the company, of which there'll be some or little capital gains tax paid in the company. It's whether what what the person with the money wants to do. Do they want to take the cash out, of which then? We need to look at whether a dividend, salary, bonus or any types of profit extraction would be required. Or if they want to, what we see with a lot of our clients is buy to grow. So they buy to let to grow their portfolio of which you sell your property on the biggest gain, reinvest the money somewhere else where then it's not a bad uh, structure to have. So that's that's quite interesting. So effectively, as long as we meet some criteria, you know, that, that, that HMRC lay out, we can transfer these properties without any capital gains tax using incorporation relief. We can do. We just need to make sure. One of the conditions is, is it needs to be a business. And uh, there was a, there's, uh, there's a quite popular piece of case law that um, got decided in 2012. It's called, in the profession, it's called the Ramsey case. Elizabeth Moy Ramsey. Yes. And um, it was a lady that owned, it was a, it was a, um, a block of flats or houses of multiple occupancy in I think it was Northern Ireland, and um, she transferred that to a to a company and claimed incorporation relief, of which HMRC challenged of whether there was a business being carried on, or whether there was uh, it was just an investment. 
and obviously the difference between an investment and a business is is how much the operator or proprietor has involvement with that with that property with it with with elizabeth uh, ramsey it was the case here was that she was working 20 hours a week and she was actually actively involved in managing the property with regards to tenants and, 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 and repairs and things like that, her and her family. So could, um, let's say we've got an investor who uses a letting agency, could they still be running their portfolio as a business and therefore qualify for incorporation relief and not have to pay capital gains tax when they transfer from, from their own name into a limited company? It all depends on how much they're involved. And what I say to our, my clients is keep a record of what you're doing with your portfolio. Because if you are, because I have some that, do, that use letting agents to get the tenants, and once the tenants in, they'll then manage their properties themselves. Or if they're um, even things like you sort out your mortgages, you're acquiring, you're viewing properties, you're arranging for the repairs to be done, you're arranging for the refurbishments done. If you've got lots of different things, but you do use a letting agent, then it's not the be all and end all, and it's not a crucial factor in deciding whether it's an investment or a business. But what I, what I, as, I, as I've said before, and I'll repeat this again. It's all about the evidence you keep that you can demonstrate that you are spending sufficient number of hours managing your portfolio actively. That's quite interesting because something you just said to me was, well, you're clearly spending a lot of time, you know, buying properties and dealing with the tenants and sorting lenders out and whatever it is to to run that business. And you said, well, if you've got a load of emails and you can show that, you know, you were doing X, Y and Z in a particular month, then that's pretty good evidence as well. Yes, and so it all depends on the facts. Now, what HMRC do have, and I have seen it happen, we've done it ourselves, is they have what's called a non-statutory clearance procedure. So if you if you if you are unsure whether what you do qualifies as a business for the relief, then we have uh, assisted a number of clients in, in in writing to HMRC and obtaining what's called a non-statutory clearance. So effectively, you're saying to HMRC, look, this is what I want to do. These are the rules as we see it. Do you agree? Yes. And then they write back and basically say whether they agree and you can do it or not. Yes, they do. They do. They write back and they'll, and they'll, 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 based on the facts we give them, and we try to be as honest as we can with them. So we, we don't make things up. <laughs> so we, what we do is we make sure we present the absolute facts to them so there is nothing they can go back on. And then they'll come back to us and then they, and touch wood, the ones that we've put in, they've all come back favourable. So that, that's quite interesting. If you love to travel like me and you understand the power in escaping the money for time exchange trap, but you just don't know how to do it, then building an Airbnb consultancy business could be exactly what you have been looking for. Right now in the UK, there is a completely untapped opportunity through helping struggling Airbnb hosts by turning around their underperforming properties and generating you huge commission payments in the process. We are going to teach you all of the tools and all of the techniques that we've learned over the last five years through building our very own multiple six-figure Airbnb business, arming you with everything that you need to swoop in and save the day. Minimal startup costs, zero risk, and almost unlimited potential. Sound good? Welcome to the Airbnb Consultant. Contact us through any of the channels included in the studio notes to get the conversation started. Interesting. I think that must take a lot of the risk out of it for the client and, and for you as well. It does. Hmm. 
Okay, fine. So that's that's capital gains tax, and that's probably it could be the biggest tax that that people would pay when they're transferring to to a limited company. I understand there might be another way around of doing it as well, using an LLP going into a partnership first. The reason why you do there's a number of reasons why you use an LLP. As I say, every every um, situation is different and might require a different structure. As it depends on whether you're married, or it's a husband and wife partnership, or it's two individuals, or it's a collection of individuals, or it's somebody who's got wants to do it through their company and somebody wants to do it as an individual. So it depends where you use, need to use a partnership or or an LLP. With regards to partnerships, the main reason people use partnerships is because if you're a sole landlord and you qualified for incorporation relief because you, you satisfied the conditions you are a business, as, as I sort of indicated earlier, for stamp duty purposes, when you transfer your property to or your portfolio to a company as a sole proprietor, you're deemed to have sold your properties at market value for SDLT, which then means as a, as a you will have a transaction subject to SDLT and as I say, if it's six or more properties, we could potentially use the commercial rates of SCLT, which then means you won't have um, the 3% surcharge. Six or less, there's multiple dwellings of relief, but ultimately there will be a stamp duty charge. People use LLPs and partnerships because at the moment there is a special relief for partnerships where partnerships try incorporate their business using incorporation relief into a company and the shares that the partners received are in mirror image, so in, in, a, in proportion to the partner's interests, that SDLT effectively is reduced to zero when on incorporation. Now, there are there is a special three-year rule for certain situations where you need to hold a property in for the LLP for three years to prevent certain clawback uh, rules coming into play. But essentially, that's probably the main reason why we see LLPs and partnerships used for this type of structure. And then you see with certain investors, they might go directly from their own personal names into a limited company. And I think if they own them jointly and other conditions are satisfied, again, they may be able to uh, avoid stamp duty. Yes. And again, um Going back to the um, non-statutory clearance that you can obtain for um, incorporation relief, you can also ask for non-statutory clearance to whether the S, whether acting together owning the property, are you akin to a partnership? So what you might not be registered as a partnership with HMRC, but you might do everything else. You might have joint books, joint records, distribute the profits like a partnership. And then again, you can present that case to HMRC and they will also come back and actually give you a ruling on whether you do qualify as a partnership for the SDLT reliefs. And and that's clearance that you can do before you do the transfer as well? Yes. Re- at, at reducing the, the risk? Yeah. At the, at the moment, HMRC are giving these clearances uh, and I've seen a number of them and we've done a number of them. But as I say, it's HMRC. They may decide tomorrow that they're not going to give these clearances anymore. Hmm. So well, get in while you can. Get it in while you can. Yeah. That's interesting. So that really deals with the the, the the incorporation relief and the ways to avoid stamp duty potentially. But we don't know what's going to happen in the future. Can you see any any other changes on the horizon? No. Uh, <laughs> it's, it's, it's really difficult because you just don't know. I think you probably leave landlords alone now because I think the other side of it, and this is just taking my non-tax hat off, is, is actually there are you, when you look on the market, 
at houses that are on the market. There are houses that actually you'd think owner occupiers wouldn't buy them, but we know that actually buy to let landlords would because they can they can do convert them, turn them into HMOs, do whatever. Those properties are probably now sitting on the market because of the, the rules that are coming into play, like the interest rules, the STLT rules and things like that. So I think he's, he's going to leave them alone now. But the only couple of things that I probably would sort of sort of highlight is incorporation relief at the moment for buy-to-let landlords. To change those rules, all the Chancellor would need to do is change one word in legislation. That's pretty scary, isn't it? It's one word yeah. in legislation. Change that one word and it won't qualify anymore. And that's the word business. Mm. So it might be a good idea to get these done if you're going to do them. You need, if you change it to the word trade, mm. then it wouldn't qualify anymore. So what about if all of a sudden he decides that all the mortgage interest isn't offsettable within a limited company? Well, again, if it's not offsettable in a limited company and it's not offsettable personally, then... You're no worse off. No worse off. Yeah. Going to commercial property. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, you know, certainly here at Progressive, we're seeing huge rent rises. You know, a three-bed ex-council property that was, say, two years ago renting for five, five twenty-five, and a year ago might have been renting for about five fifty. You know, normal kind of normal average. You know, rental growth over time. That same property is now renting for six fifty. We're talking about six seven five, and and you know the the lettings department think it's going to be seven hundred by the summer. So rental growth is really happening. It's not just people talking about it now. We're seeing it. I mean, we manage about seven hundred tenants, so you know we get quite a good view of the market. And I suspect the reduction in the number of new landlords buying is what's driving this because there are less rental properties coming on the market. Still, lots of tenants. And quite a few of them are being scared off by this. So who knows? They may they may have to change the rules again, but it may be the other way. But it's probably going to take them, I guess, a few years to realise what they've done. Well, I think the government should ask us themselves the question why we have lots of buy-to-let landlords. And it's probably because they can't earn a decent interest uh, return on capital elsewhere. I think there's uh, there's a lot of truth to that. And, uh, and, and the other thing is that the government doesn't provide the housing that the country needs so all interesting points now luke i've had quite a few questions from different elements of of our community different people sending me emails in you know stuff on facebook asking me about different schemes that they should maybe you know whether they should go into a scheme and you know there's this person says they can transfer my portfolio through by this route and i'm not going to have to pay any tax and you know, there's there's ideas of trusts. What what do you, what's your general view on on schemes and dotassable stuff? As you know, for for, for property or, or for for general, you know, business taxation. I think with schemes in general, what I've always told spoke to clients when when they've come to me and they, they they've been presented with something. The first thing I always say to them is, if you do consider something like that, you've got to have your eyes wide open and be prepared. Uh, the tax you save that you might have to pay back. I think the publicity on on schemes over the last sort of four or five years, I think, speaks for itself. With with the Jimmy Cars and the Gary Barlows and the footballers and and everybody else who entered into these avoidance schemes, of which yes, you do get a quick win, but HMRC at the moment are challenging them and winning them, and they are throwing 
all their toys that they have at these at these schemes. So anything that comes with a DOTAS number, personally, I don't we 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 don't get involved with. I have a saying, and the saying I have is, um, let's get ninety five percent of the way there, and leave the other five percent to the one the risk takers that want that extra five percent. Because I've got we've got tried and tested structures, tried and tested ways of doing things that gets gets them 95% of the way there. Well, it doesn't sound like... I mean, if people qualify as a business, it doesn't sound like they're going to be paying much no. uh, capital gains tax and you may be able to deal with the stamp duty as well or maybe they pay a little bit you know, on, on some of it or use multiple dwellings relief or whatever. I know personally, you know, I've, you know, I've done... I've, you know, used a few schemes in the past and every single one has been challenged and most of them, the law was changed retrospectively. So the law was changed kind of going backwards and ended up paying the money back. And in every case, the scheme provider went bust. So the money I'd paid them, which was usually half the tax saved, was lost. And I ended up with a load of paperwork from an administrator. So that's my my experience of, of that sort of stuff. So I'm I'm a bit kind of anti anyway, but I know I've given you one in particular, but you I think you you probably need a little bit more time to to have a look at it, assess it, and and maybe you'll come back with some comment. But it's it's around trusts. Could you kind of talk to us about trusts in a in a more general way, and you know how they can be used for for property, and if if there are any good in this scenario? Trusts used properly within with inside family relationships, so 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 family wealth, protecting the family wealth and passing the wealth down for inheritance tax reliefs. There are some really really good trust planning op- opportunities there with family pr- trusts with property, and there, there are some really really good sort of solutions and structures that that we do day to day. The trusts that we come across that we sort of tend to sort of look at a little bit more closely is anything involving an offshore trust, firstly. So anything that's owning property offshore, HMRC also tend to look at these um, very carefully. Isn't that like a kind of red light just going off on top of, you know, a pile of, excuse my friends, shit? you know, which effectively HMRCC and just zoom in on, it's very easy for them and just cause you a load of grief and weeks and weeks of paperwork and, and probably get a load of money out of you. It for is. It. Is, that, is that commonly what happens? It is. They say offshore trusts, again, yeah. are useful, but they're useful for certain type of transactions. So you have got non-domiciliaries. Yeah. Then, yes, an offshore trust for certain types of transactions or some types of investment is probably the advice we would give where you've got uk domiciled persons uk resident persons offshore trusts tend to be no not really then anything using them there'll be a scheme that probably could you could get into it but it's then again you're looking you're going down the dotas route the second sort of schemes that get offered is 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 what we call employee benefit trusts so so trusts that run alongside limited companies do they work well do do these do these ebts work ask rangers football club (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> who um, obviously uh, went bust because of their EBT. So, uh, no, they don't. And again, EBTs, they, they do work with certain types of transactions, certain types of what they were designed to be used for. But the problem is, is people then use these trusts for what they were not designed to be used for, of which then HMRC will come on you like a ton of bricks. And with EBTs, and again, they, they won the Rangers case, and they've won other cases on, 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 on sort of the misuse of these types of trusts to effectively get money out of companies out with no tax. So effectively, trusts can be used for 
you know, for avoiding tax and reducing your tax bill. And um, you guys use them. And I think you said you've got what two or three guys at your firm, and all they do all day is trusts. Yeah. Is that right? Yeah. So we have people within the firm, and they advise on trusts, and uh, but we do, it's always in the correct way. So use the trust for what it was designed to be used for. We'll talk a little bit about tax avoidance and 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 what defines tax avoidance. HMRC regard tax avoidance to be a preordained step of transactions that actually have no commercial need for those transactions so you have 10 steps if you want to get a to b but you put 10 steps in between so you can get to b hmrc will view that because if those steps in the middle have no commercial reason to be there other than to avoid tax then hmrc will consider that to be a tax avoidance transaction now many of the structures and the and these um sort of opportunities being marketed contain a number of unnecessary steps just to avoid tax HMRC a few years ago and the government introduced what we call the uh, general anti-avoidance rule, the GAR as we call it, where a specialist advisory board was set up to review these types of transactions to decide whether they are caught by what we call the the, the GAR and then subject they'll be thrown out, they'll become ineffective. And while no, no cases have been presented there, there is this rule there. And again, it is it, making sure that you don't fall foul of the GAR. And secondly, DOTAS, when we look at DOTAS, so Disclosure of Tax Avoidance Schemes, there are relevant hallmarks that um, becomes a DOTAS scheme. These hallmarks, if you meet them, things like marketability, are they mass-marketed, are they sort of like a one-size-fits-all scheme, so not bespoke advice. And then secondly, the preordained steps with no commercial reason. They become a DOTAS scheme, of which then... HMRC will look at these very, very closely. And again, they're winning. They're winning these cases. Yeah, I know from my experience, they um, even if a barrister tells you that they're wrong, usually they just say, don't care, pay us the tax, let's go to tax tribunal. And then they'll go to the higher tier and that'll probably cost you 50, 60 grand. And you don't get that money back even if you win. Nope. So the kind of it's a little bit unfair, isn't it? The, the rules are sort of stacked in their favour even if you're right, which is a bit weird. Yeah, it's, I, I'd say I, I told a client once, um, going to a tax avoidance scheme is like going to Las Vegas. Be prepared to lose what you put in because um, you probably will. Yeah. Okay, so let's put that aside now. That's that's the sort of stuff that we don't think is a great idea. But you've got a few other nice little tricks on top of the incorporation relief and you know the stamp duty relief that, that we can utilize just for people who are running their portfolio on a day-to-day basis you know some stuff i've learned today which is is, is great at helping you reduce your tax bill and uh, it's pretty 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 simple stuff but highly effective do you want to go through some of them yeah uh, yeah there's a, there's a couple of things the first thing is what we spoke about before when we we transfer the properties to a company if you own those properties um, in your own name, so you had a, a property, it was 100000 you bought it in 1985. The base cost for capital gains tax purposes to date will still be £100,000. In a company, the base cost does actually rise within the indexation. Mm. So if you hold properties in a company for, say, 20 or 30 years, the base cost will rise up with indexation, and it's with RPI as well. So actually, if you... I have very often where we have family companies dispose of their trading factories or whatever and they've owned the property since 1992 and they've paid like 100000 for it. 
we're actually working out that when you index that base cost up to say 2017 or 2016 prices, actually the gains were pretty much wiped out. So, how much did they pay for it initially in that scenario? Oh, they paid. I think it was a hundred thousand pounds. And and now worth roughly about seven fifty or so. Yeah, and and, then, and roughly how many years? This was about 20 years. So so a 600 grand gain in the last 20 years, because obviously it depends what, what um, you know, the, the rate of inflation has been. It's been pretty much wiped out. With indexation relief, it was With wiped out. Yeah. So, so therefore, the, the company actually paid no capital gains. That's interesting, tax. isn't it? Because I hear a lot from people about them not, not getting the capital gains allowance every year when they shift to a limited company. You get £11,100 personal capital gains allowance every year yep. and if you don't use it or should i say if it's in a company you you know you don't get that but you get indexation relief which can be a lot more powerful it can do and as i say when you when you own the property for for more than the last five years aren't so good because inflation hasn't has been uh, stagnant but um yeah well get ready for what's <laughs> what's happening now yeah so get, get them in now because uh, if rpi goes up by uh, quite a few percentage points in the next couple of years, then you'll probably find your, your base cost of your properties will rise up in, with, with RPI. So uh, the capital gains indexation rules is something that does get forgotten, mm. that they exist. Well, I, you know, it's, it's something I knew about, but I'd not really focused on. I've got properties in a limited company, but it's not really something that um, I discuss very much, you know, with the accountant. And, and yeah, it's very valuable and there for the taking. So you've got some other ideas that I think you're going to share with us around buying a property and doing a refurb on it? Yes. So obviously one of the other changes that was brought in was the uh, abolition of the wear and tear allowance, the the good old 10% of your rental income if you've got your prop if you if you've got your if you're supplying a, a furnished property. That was obviously replaced with a renewals allowance whereby the first purchase of white goods, movable furniture, or things like your, your fixtures and things like that are not allowable for tax, but your subsequent replacement of those items is deductible for tax, then you will get a, a revenue relief for it. So historically, obviously, landlords would love for their um, properties to be furnished because they got a 10% um, additional deduction against rents. Whereas now, with a wear and tear allowance, it's not that applicable anymore because it's now been abolished. So it's all about the renewals. Which doesn't also which doesn't extend just to furniture; it can extend to fixtures. Now, a couple of um, ideas we've had, and when we're speaking, when we're talking with our clients who are purchasing buy-to-let properties, is actually speaking to the vendor to actually say, "Look, actually, for five hundred quid or whatever, can we buy your furniture, or can we buy bits of your furniture? Maybe they're 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 moving house to a bigger house, and actually they're going to change all their furniture anyway. That's what we did when we moved." buy their furniture maybe it's the house is 115,000 you give them 500 for the furniture 114 and a half for the property buy the furniture with the property a week later replace it with what you want to put in it if you've replaced it a week later and it's cost you three or four thousand pounds aren't you not replacing the furniture that you've already bought so that's quite interesting. So that three or four thousand pounds can then come off what revenue? The, the, the effectively corporation taxes. As, right? as, as long as you're replacing like for like. So if you are replacing a, a, a sofa with a new sofa, or you're not substantially putting more in than what you've yeah. um, purchased, then yes, potentially it all comes back down to the records that you keep. So something else that you might end up doing is is buying a property and refurbishing it. Yes. How could we? 
do that in the right way to enable us to offset more of that cost against tax? Yes, refurbishment costs are, are, are a, a grey area that have been tried and tested uh, for the last 100 years, if believe it or not. And it's all whether, whether the refurbishment is cattle, which you won't get tax relief for, or whether it's revenue, of which you will get tax relief for. Now, the revenue HMRC would regard that costs are capital if you have to spend money on the asset to bring it into use. So if you acquire the asset and it's in, usable, in unusable condition, so you buy a house and it's not available, it's not, you couldn't let it in its current state, then any costs to bring it to be able to, to let it in its current state would be deemed as capital. However, if you buy a, a property and actually the kitchen and the bathroom, the boiler, the central heating are perfectly serviceable and perfectly usable and it could be let in its current state, but then you decide, actually, we want to completely refurbish it because we want a higher market of tenant. We which, to... which is pretty common, isn't yeah. it? You, you often buy a property. I mean, it's got everything there. You know, it's got the kitchen, it's got the bathroom, all the rest of it, but they were put in by the, you know, in the 80s, it needs repainting, carpeting, kitchen, all that sort of stuff. It's pretty common for that to take place. What what should you do to prove that that stuff was there and you're just replacing? What I've told clients to do, and I've used this with HMRC before, is actually very clearly go in and take pictures of your, of your house. When you buy it? Yeah. Yeah. So then you can, if they come back later, you can say, you can show, well, actually, all that stuff was there. It's a renewal. Therefore, it comes off the... Um, the corporation tax and it's a revenue item yeah to get your tax relief i would always say is, is, is build your file build your evidence to show that if hmrc ever decide to look into your tax return to see whether your costs are deductible that you have your evidence there to show straight away that yes here you go and they say with 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 a, with a property you buy it whether your letting agent does it for you or whether you do it yourself take those pictures bank them and then when you refurbish them, you can actually say, well, this is the old boiler, this is the new boiler, this is the old kitchen, this is the new kitchen, and, and so on and so on. Same with the carpets and things like that. So you can show that actually the house that you purchased was in a fully lettable condition. You've, you, you've decided actually, rather than five years' time, I'm going to refurbish it now. Mm, interesting. Have you got any other nice little kind of juicy benefits for us here, Luke? Other little tricks that we can use to, to, to get our tax bill down legitimately the only other bits that I want to talk about today is, is, is when we, we're just coming back down to the, the interest restriction rules um, so, so if we can't incorporate for whatever the reason then what other things could we do and it's very simple I would say they're quite simple things that we've been talking to clients about actually they've not thought about one of them is actually can you pay your debt down using other assets so um, we've got clients that have got family companies that have got credit balance in their director's loan accounts. So we say, well, why don't you draw on your loan account in your company and repay off your, your, your finance on your buy-to-lets to get your mortgage, to get your interest rates down? The other one, obviously, look, look at the cost of refinancing. What Do the, do the numbers, do the projections. And, and, and secondly, um, it's, a, it's quite shocking now where we see new clients and the husband or the wife owns the rental properties, but actually they don't own them together. Look at intra-spouse transfers. If you have a non-working spouse, who maybe is a basic rate taxpayer, then why don't we look at transferring some of the properties to the non-working spouse? There are stamp duty implications that we need to consider. 
but looking at transferring to the non-working spouse to actually utilise the non-working spouse's 20% tax band, which then means, and I had one situation where actually we transferred them to the, to the wife in this instance, that actually they didn't need to incorporate because the wife was a basic rate taxpayer and therefore these rules didn't apply to them anymore. And uh, that was it. The other one is simply increased rents, which is... <laughs> <laughs> so paying down debt might actually mean that a landlord leaves the property in their own name, may not need to transfer to a limited company, because, of course, if you own properties in your own name that don't have any debt against them, therefore there's no interest to offset well, then you're not affected by these new rules. No, you're not. Um, you're not affected at all by these rules. But actually, it's quite funny because the last couple of years we've seen a big boom in buy-to-let tax advice. But we've been advising buy-to-let landlords for many, many years and we've been talking to them about them incorporating for long before sort of a couple of years ago, five, six, seven years ago, purely because actually, even if the property still is in your own name and you're a 40% taxpayer and you're wanting to grow your portfolio, you're having to grow that out of 60% net proceeds, where actually if that's in a company and you're paying tax at 20% and you're wanting to grow your portfolio, you've got 80% of the proceeds to grow your portfolio. And corporation tax is coming down to 17% in 2020, 2021, which then means you're going to have more post-tax income to grow your portfolio. This is a big point. You know, the value of what Luke has just described over time is absolutely massive. If you're paying 17% tax every year, therefore you'll be keeping 83% of, of, the, of the profit. And then you're reinvesting that and then you're doing that year after year after year after year. If you compare that with being, say, a 40 or 45% taxpayer, or even if you're paying a slightly lower rate of a personal income tax, it's still going to be a hell of a lot more than company corporation tax. Now, in year one, obviously, there's an effect and you may end up saving, who knows, 15, 20, 25%. But over time, that saving or that extra investment compounds and it, it goes absolutely stratospheric. If you, if you put it on a graph, if you reinvest that extra 20% every year, you then make, you know, another 10 or 20% on that money and pay another 20% tax on that money. And then it just goes on and on and on. And over, let's say, a 20 year period of growing a portfolio, the compounded effects of that are absolutely massive. Lots of you will have heard me talk about compound interest being the seventh wonder of the world. Well, here it is. This is um, this is a, a you know a big opportunity to to take advantage of that. Of course, getting money out of a limited company is not so easy. Certainly, earning it personally, you know, you've got it in your own name and you can spend it as as you want. But there are ways to do that. And over time, obviously, you can draw dividends at a, at a at a reasonably low level and not pay too much tax. If you want to draw larger amounts out, there are ways of moving money around companies and, and, and eventually extracting money from a company. And certainly, I know Luke can, can sit down and help you with that. The key to all of this is that there really is no one size fits all. I've heard accountants say that sort of thing to me for years and I've kind of gone, yeah, 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 just tell us how to do it. Surely there's a, you know, there's a, you can, there's a strategy or there's a way to get around it. But the point is because it's so complex and because there's so many moving parts to this, you really need to sit down with a proper accountant to look at what 
entity your properties are held in currently? Are they personal? Are they joint? Or maybe they're already in a company. You know, what stamp duty is potentially payable? Are you running it as a business? What's your income? What other income streams you've got? What kind of lenders have you got? All that stuff needs to go into the pot. And then out of the back of that, a good accountant will come out with a solution. And I've seen lots of people incorporating or, or maybe not even incorporating, just staying as they are, but maybe paying some debt down or, or changing the structure of their portfolio. And they've not got massive tax bills. And often they've had a letter from HMRC effectively giving them their blessing, saying, yeah, what you're doing in principle is OK, which helps us all. So. So I'd recommend you you sit down with somebody who specialises in property tax advice, not a, a generalised accountant, but but somebody who deals with you know property investment tax on a on a daily basis. And and clearly Luke is somebody who can do that. You d- you don't have to see him. You could you see another firm, but Luke at McIntyre Hudson is a, is a great person to go and see about that. Luke, could you just tell my listeners how they would get hold of you? Yes, my contact details. I can be either be emailed on uh, lprout, that's L-P-R-O-U-T, at mhllp.co.uk, or uh, my, our telephone number, uh, we're based in Peterborough, but obviously we have offices all over the UK, but the Peterborough office number is 01733 Luke, that's been brilliant. I've learned a lot myself today. I know that, that people listening to this will, will have got a lot out of it. And hopefully they're going to save a lot of tax too when um, you know when they they come to use some of your your principles. That has been Mark Homer for Mark My Words. Thank you for listening.